time to look at the, the brilliance of Paul's compositions. Uh, like we did in the Corinthian series, we were always looking at the brilliance of how Paul actually composed his letters. Because, as I often said, but today we're going to do that. Today we're going to take a minute and we're going to look at Paul's brilliance in composition. Because, as I often said during our Corinthian series, understanding the way Paul composes his writing is not just an exercise in celebrating his literary genius. It helps us actually to better understand what he's writing. And that's often where sometimes I think we, when we just pick up the Bible and we read it in you know, all these modern translations, which are English and are heavily Greek influenced without a Hebrew background, it just leads us down these paths that maybe Paul was never getting at. And here in these lists, Paul is at his most stunningly brilliant on multiple levels. Multiple. It's, it's incredible. I, I'm really excited about this morning and going through this with us. So today what we're going to do is mostly focus on the first list of sins. And then the next time we're going to focus on the second list of fruit. But even today, both are going to come into focus because it's all part of this brilliant composition of Paul. So first of all, notice how he orders this list. Okay, It starts with three sexual sins. Then it, that is followed by two spiritual sins. And that's followed by eight social or community sins. And then he ends with two social or cultural sins. And now, there's an amazing pattern here that we're going to see in a second. But hopefully some of you who are here during the Corinthian series are going to start to see that pattern right away in your heads, knowing how Paul writes. All right? So let's, let's get into them. The first three are sexual sins. <coughs> Excuse me. Though Paul probably was referring to specific things and not the more broader net that many moderns want to cast when they read this list. All right? The first word was most likely speaking of prostitution, including temple prostitution. All right? and I want to make a side note on this because this is a big deal that Paul puts this down. Because this is actually completely acceptable culturally in that time and place. Okay, so for Paul to say, hey, this stuff you're doing in your temple worship and, by the way, with other prostitutes, this just really doesn't work about following Christ. The second term refers to sexual uncleanness. And this is a more difficult term to really nail down because this original word means so many different things. Um, it's used often in the Levitical sense of physical uncleanliness, which separates us from God. That would include even medical issues that would keep us separate from God. Remember in the Levitical law, women during their menstrual period, after any kind of sex, things like this. So this is a tough word to nail down. When Paul uses it in his letters, it's often maybe highlighting a sort of sexual impurity in contrast to what the cultural norm may have been, okay, at that time. And then the last word refers to what Witherington terms extreme and public debauchery of a kind that would be shocking to even a baby. All right, so this is, it, Josephus uses this word, in fact, when he refers to the time Herod killed one of his wives because of the way she was exposing herself to another man. All right, so this would be debauchery of any kind that even, even people that don't have any sense of moral morality would be like, no, you, we just don't do that. All right, so that's probably what Paul is getting at here. This is a total disregard for 
any kind of cultural norm. And then Paul follows that with these two terms, okay, which refer to the practices of the local religions. This is not idolatry and witchcraft in the sense we talk about it. Okay, you know, making something God that isn't, or the dark arts, you know. So, sorry, all those authors that wrote books why Harry Potter shouldn't be read by Christians and use this verse. That's really not what Paul was talking about. Okay, this is actually, Paul is referring to really the literal worshiping of the gods in those days. He was referring to the temple practices in those days. Probably even... He was, he was probably even making a nod to the way that they would use drugs to induce altered consciousness in these worship settings in, for some of these gods, okay? And so understanding these two words also can help us understand the way Paul ends this list with these two words, drunkenness and orgies, because again, this is actually what temple and symposiums ended up being, including... And this is, remember, for those of us who went back to, in the Corinthian story, in the Corinthian study, remember when Paul was ripping the Corinthians for, you know, all sorts of bad behavior at communion? Which is why it's really hard to take Paul's teaching on communion and apply it directly to today, because he was talking about other things. So what would happen in those days, both in Greece, Greece areas of the world and the Roman areas of the world, they had symposiums. Or in their temples. And they would start off with more formal types of worship where everyone was included. And then as the night went along... The women would leave, the kids would leave, and then the men would just, it would just devolve into these parties of extreme drunkenness and extreme sexuality, where all sorts of, you know, horrific things would be going on, abuse of children and, and what have you. And so this is exactly what Paul's getting at. So we can see here what Paul is doing with this part of this list. Okay, what he's doing is he's pointing out to the Galatian believers their past way of living and pointing out the culture around them, how they continue to live. Okay, so it's as if what he does is he holds up a mirror and he says to these Galatian believers, because that's who he's writing this letter to, and he says, hey, this is the way you used to live. Remember? This is the way you used to live. Now as followers of Christ, filled with the Spirit, we don't do that. Remember that. Okay? I don't actually think any of the Galatian believers were continuing this line, but remember the great argument that all of Galatians makes up. That's why he has to remind them. It's, this is incredible stuff, possibly. So he's saying, hey, this is how we used to live, not anymore as followers of Christ. Okay? But then, the eight sins in the middle are different. These are different. He's now holding up a mirror, and he's saying... This is what is going on among the believers in Galatia, and we don't do this either. Here's the problem in Galatia. Okay? Now notice what Paul does here, which is brilliant. These sins start as feelings, hatred, discord, anger, which lead to actions, fits of rage, selfish ambition, which then finally end with results. In the community. Dissensions, factions, and envy. Now a side note on envy, because in English you're like, well David, that's, a, that's an emotion, that should be it. No, no. The word that's used here, this is, is an action word. It's acts of will, and of malice, and envy. Okay, so this is that, that's what this is. Alright? Brilliant. He ends with this word, actually. 
this is going on with my side note, the ends here, let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. This is his final statement to the Galatians. Basically, this is what has happened. You are now living like this as believers, and this is unacceptable. Okay? There was division. The community was breaking down. So, did anyone see the pattern? Remember from the Corinthian series? The ABA pattern. Did you see that? This will drive some of your memories if, if you didn't pick it up already. Paul was always writing in these incredible patterns. He didn't write like a Greek person. He wrote like a Hebrew person. Okay? So, here he has A. The A sins are the sins that were associated with life before Christ or still representative of the culture around him. And the B sin, and then the B sins were against the community of faith. The B. Okay? Witherington comments. Paul wishes his community of converts to be like neither the community centered on the pagan temple nor the community centered on the Mosaic law. Rather that they are to be a community centered on Christ and in the spirit. Beautiful. So what we are to really focus on in this as believers is the B list. Okay? That's our focus. This is Paul's main point in putting this list together. Number one, there's eight of those compared to the rest. So just by that, Paul's saying, hey, this is what's more important. But second, more importantly, Paul's writing was not linear. He didn't start with his main point or build up to his main point. And this is, in fact, what causes so much problem when you're reading Paul. I read so many commentaries studying for this in which guys are just like, and so sexual sins Paul's most concerned about. See, he leads off with them. No, it's not. I don't even think his believers in Galatia were dealing with that stuff. What his point is, is this in the middle. The central piece of what Paul is getting at. This is where we are looking in the mirror. I've said many times leading up to this study, all right, this section right here, remember, we, I, I built context to get to these lists, because these lists, are the, remember I did that dun-dun-dun-dun on the Beethoven day? Because this is the list. Everyone makes a big deal out of these lists. Okay, maybe. But at least let's understand them if they're a big deal. This is what he wants us to focus on. Right here, this central pattern. Because what? Let's be honest. Is this or is this not sadly accurate of the Christian church in the world? There we are. This is why I love the Bible so much. This is why I'm fine when people say the Bible speaks to all times. Yes, it does. Maybe not on the surface. Maybe you've got to dig a little bit. But look it. Paul, 2,000 years ago, was dealing with the Christian church completely divided by this. And what is Paul still dealing with? A Christian church completely divided by this. Little churches divided by this, the church in general divided by this. And I don't think a small part of that is because we Christians have spent our time focused on the bit. Right? We love to worry about what non-Christians are doing with their sex lives, don't we? I don't know why that is such a focus of the Christian church. Like, What? It's always easier to point fingers at what we don't do. Then we don't have to deal with what we do do. And there it is. Let's turn Galatians 5 into Paul ripping people about sexuality. Nope. 
Nope, you don't have that loophole. Now I'm going to step aside and make a side note. This does not mean A is not important. That's not what I'm saying. Do not hear that. Please. I get accused of saying things I never said. So I want to be clear. And just because Paul may have meant specific things to the people of that time, things which we're not part of, at least I don't know anyone that's still going to... When I lived in India, I did. I know people that would go to, go to temples and get involved in this stuff. But I don't know anyone in America that's doing it. I'm sure there are people that do it. But I don't know any Christians. But anyway, this list is not exhaustive. Remember, Paul said, and things like these. And things like these. So, here's what I'm saying. We should all be careful to examine our own sexual lives for deviations from what Christ would celebrate and what he would not. And I want to be clear, you hear what I just said very carefully because I chose that sentence very carefully when I was preparing for this. There is sex that Christ will celebrate. And I think, I wish in more Christian churches there were teachings on that. Because I think we all have such a hangover from the Puritans and other Christian denominations in which all sex is bad and we're left with this hangover of guilt and shame and it destroys marriages. There is sex that God celebrates. He created us and said, oh, by the way, the only way your species survives is to have sex. Do you think he doesn't like sex? <laughs> but then like everything good he gave us, we've destroyed. So, I am not saying ignore A. What I'm saying is, on your own, A, examine your lives and be honest with yourselves. And if you need help, get help. Figure it out and get help. Because God wants our lives to be complete and full. And even those of us that are single and are in lives that are asexual, Life can still be beautiful and filled with the creativity that ultimately sex stands for. But remember this, and this is the most important thing, and we're about to jump into this. This is what we have talked about for three weeks. If you have issues with sexuality in your life, don't try harder. That's not the point. Remember, we use the Cherokee parable of the two wolves. We use the Jesus parable of the seeds. Just feed the good wolf. Feed the good wolf. And the issues will take care of themselves. Don't try to fight the issues on your own. It's impossible. Feed the good wolf. Alright? But the focus remains these eight. The focus remains these eight. Who can say they're not guilty? Come on, I dare someone to raise their hand. <laughs> Hatred, discord, anger, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Now, let's talk about this, because this is all of us. Number one, right off the bat, notice Paul calls these works. But the next list is fruit. Why didn't Paul say, but the works of the Spirit are feeding the poor? Giving to your adult church? Read your Bible. Why didn't he do that? I think because works always lead to these sins. <clears throat> this is why Paul wrote this letter. 
This is why Paul wrote all of his letters, to explain to us grace. This is why Paul actually said, the law brings death. Paul said that, not me. Think about this. Why do we work? Why do we work? Because we need something, right? Most of us are going to get up tomorrow morning and go to work. Why? Because we need something. There is a deficit, and we need to make up that deficit. Correct? This is why we work. And if we're working to make up a deficit, it's because what? Because we are afraid we can't live in deficit. And fear is the opposite of everything grace is. Catch that, please. We work because of deficit. And we're afraid to live in deficit. And fear is the opposite of everything grace is. So, fear causes us to work for self-preservation. And there's the sin, capitalized. These are all small-ass symptoms of what sin is, self-preservation. And it started way back in our beautiful Hebrew telling of the beginning, the only way, like, a beautiful story to tell us whatever happened in Adam and Eve sinned and they went right into self-preservation instead of running back to God and saying we're really sorry and being loved by this incredibly loving forgiving God right into self-preservation we'll make our clothes we'll hide ourselves and we'll go and go fear self is the God that we all have self-preservation is just another form of worshipping ourselves in a kinder, gentler way. We don't put our picture on the wall. We don't light candles to it. Instead, we just spend our time trying to preserve ourselves. Because we're afraid. Because of death. So we work. Works can only lead to sin. They can't lead anywhere else. Listen, the Christian church is divided. Not over grotesque a sins infiltrating the church. It's divided over what works are the right works. Right? Think about it. Like Dave said. Because I was like him when I was in... I look like that? <laughs> that was brilliant what you said. I was young. I couldn't wait for the kingdom to come to be proven right. <laughs> That's the majority of people's religion. I'm right. You're wrong. Let's have an argument about it. <coughs> Works can only lead to sin. Why do we pursue deviant sexual or chemical-induced highs? Because we're trying to satisfy a deficit. That's why. That's the saddest part of heroin addiction. And why it's the one drug I pray my kids never, ever experiment with. Because it just takes one high. That completely makes you forget every single pain, fear you ever felt. And then you're going to live in that deficit. And you're just going to need it. Why do we pursue sexual deviation of any kind? 
We just need a high. We just need a release. Why, since Netflix and Amazon have come out, is there an explosion of made-for-TV series? We just need release. Something to get us through the night into the next day. We're working to preserve ourselves. Works always lead to sin. Why do we break down community? Because we're afraid if we're not right... We're in deficit. So our fear causes us to feel these things and then act that way, and that creates dissension. Because, oh my gosh, if I'm not right and that person is, one of us is going to hell. Well, there's a grotesque theology. You're not right about a theology, so you're going to hell? What? Oh, it says so in the Bible. Oh, does it? Do you see what works do? Works destroy. They lead to sin. There's no other answer to works. But grace is different. Grace is the opposite of works. Grace trusts we are loved by the only person that matters. The divine creator. The king of the universe. Think about that. We're loved by that person. I say this all the time. Do we know that? And if we don't, that's the only thing we should be focused on. We should not focus on anything else until we know that like we know it takes oxygen to live. Because when we know we are loved by the king of the universe, the creator, the God that holds life in the palm of his hand. Think about how big that God is. And think how little we've made him. This earth is a speck in the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is a speck in the universe. And that whole thing is in God's hand. How big is this God that loves us? To know that beyond a shadow of a doubt we have everything we could possibly ever need. Even when circumstances right now don't seem to say that. Circumstances are temporary. The kingdom is forever. Circumstances are hard. Right now, this is so come home to me. It's like, I think it was Thursday I might have told Rich, boy, am I excited about this teaching. And then all of a sudden this weekend, I just lived it. It's been a tough week for my wife and I. I'm, right now our circumstances are really tough. I'm shattered as a dad. I'm dying inside. And, um, <laughs> and, that, and the bad wolf is just raging in me, raging. And um, so this weekend, Oh my gosh, driving into the city. And uh, typically I know Boston like the back of my hand. And halfway in, I got a call from work and something was going south at work. And, and that was just minor compared to what I'm dealing with personally. And all of a sudden, I couldn't. I, I, you might have thought I never drove to Boston. And so that was incredibly frustrating me. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm using my horn. I never use my horn. I'm yelling at people. And then all of a sudden, my wife's like, Stop! <laughs> 
And the way she said it was so terrifying. I slammed on my brakes. I was ready to just go right through a red light because the intersection. I didn't even see the red light. I've been short all weekend. Because I'm living in deficit. I'm so sad right now. I'm so broken. My boy, I love him so much. So I've been sitting in the back row today just like, wait a second. I'm feeding the wrong wolf right now. Being the wrong wolf. The good wolf is there. He wants to come out. He wants to win. I just started praying. I started letting go of my fear. God loves me all more than I could ever love him. God, he set this whole thing up for me to get better. And it started. It just started. I started laughing at all that anger. <laughs> Circumstances are temporary. Feed the good wolf. Takes our fear away. Because we don't have deficit when we know this isn't the end. This isn't the end. The great healing is coming to us all. All of us. And that's going to be great. Because we're all going to be proven right there. We're all going to be proven that God loves us. That's going to be an amazing day. And we're going to realize how temporary this pain is. So see, we don't need to work. Don't work. Stop working. We just need to bear fruit. Because of grace, God the Spirit in us bears fruit. How beautiful is this gospel? Finally understand why that Verse, how beautiful the feet that bring it. We need to tell each other stories all the time. See, so even if we read this list and think, oh crap, I'm outside the kingdom. <laughs> First of all, that may not be true. Quick side note, I know I've gone a little bit long, but this is not about doing these things you know are wrong and feeling bad and trying not to. Okay? Often, it is the trying not to that keeps us doing them. Okay? Remember what we looked at for two weeks, right? I've talked about this. Feeding the good wolf, which I just talked about. We're getting out of the way of the good seed in us that's trying to grow. This is more about the fact. What Paul is getting at here in this list, what he's getting at is this. People doing these things consistently and not even recognizing they're wrong. That's what Paul's getting at. Okay? We talk about this all the time at Canaan. Like, for example, we're going to talk about it next week during our Forgiveness Sunday. I know it's hard to love and forgive our enemies. All I'm asking, all, not I'm asking, all Jesus is asking, all God is asking us is that we start by recognizing it's the right thing to do. That's all. Because if we don't recognize it's the right thing to do, if we don't recognize these are not the right thing to do, then is the Spirit in us? Do you see? So when Paul says, you know, and people who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God, this is not an indicative. This is not, oh my gosh, you do these things, you're going to get punished. That's not what this is. What Paul is calling out, he's saying, this is, this is an indicative. Did I say that right the way? Did I say that right way? Or did I use indicative already? No, imperative. Yeah. This is indicative. <laughs> what he's saying is, if we're doing these things, and we don't even know they're wrong... 
then we're not in the kingdom to begin with. That's what he's saying. That's what Paul's getting at. So of course we don't inherit the kingdom if we're not even in it. Do you see? But the invitation is to be in it. But even if we read this and we think, oh crap, I'm outside. First of all, just thinking that probably means we're not. And the beauty is we don't need to focus on this list. Stop focusing on this list. We just need to focus on grace and let grace rule. Dave picked that beautiful song, which he hasn't done since last April, April 17, 2017. 1917, now we're going to and it's just remember where he's singing, uh, um, God, I want more of you. It's you I want more of. It's you I want more of. It's you I want. That should be our meditation. That should be our prayer. Not putting this list on the wall and trying to go out every day and not do it. No, you'll do it. Ignore the list. Ask for more of God. All right? And this is where the brilliance of Paul can really help. Ready? So complete this with Paul's composition the way we started. Okay, he has two lists he wrote to us. Watch this. He starts one list with hatred, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then he says discord, and he puts joy and peace. Anger versus patience. Fits of rage versus kindness. Acts of selfish ambition versus acts of generosity. Dissensions leading to factions versus faithfulness to others. Acts of envy versus acts of considerate. Paul is, oh. He makes Shakespeare look rather pedestrian. He is amazing in his composition. And to understand it, is spectacular. I know I'm not excited too, Craig. <laughs> the fruits that he gives us are the exact opposite of the works. And further, do you see the works that he's focused on? Not the outside ones. Because that wasn't really the problem in Galatia. He was using that to remind them, that's what you were, now you're this. But now we have a bigger issue. The fruits will win over the works every time. Every time. <laughs> so living by grace and not works is what not only bears fruit in our lives, it's what destroys the sin in our lives. We can't destroy sin in our lives. Just let God in us bear fruit and he will destroy the sin. Because you know when you're angry and you're out of control... And your daughter, who you love so much, tells you, wow, you're an angry elf. Does that work? Nope, that just makes you angrier. Because <laughs> you can't work yourself out of anger. But that's okay, because the fruit of patience will work yourself right out of anger. It just covers anger, it destroys anger. You can't be angry and patient at the same time. How amazing is Paul? <laughs> So, you know, maybe these lists are dun 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 dun. But that's when we understand how amazingly brilliant they are. Witherington notes Paul has indeed filled out in a very clear way what he meant when he spoke of the antagonism between flesh and spirit, what he meant by the flesh fights against the spirit, 
we spent two weeks building context for this section by looking at the Cherokee parable of the two wolves and the Jesus parable of the sower and the seed. Now it should be clear, I hope, why that was so helpful in understanding these things. Feed the good wolf. Let the seed do its thing, and we will have the fruit in our lives that destroys sin. What a beautiful gospel. What a beautiful God.